What is a hero? Are they born? Is it in their DNA? Or are heroes created, refined in the fires of trial and adversity? Maybe being a hero is a choice, a choice to be bold, to stand up for what is right, a choice not to wait, but to seek out opportunities to take up the torch of faith and hold it high, no matter the cost. Oh, good morning, church. Good morning. You know, we live in a world fascinated with superheroes, don't we? I mean, Marvel's Avengers are some of the highest grossing movies of all times. Now, when I grew up, the superheroes, they happened on Saturday mornings, and it was the Justice League, okay? So I had, you know, Superman and Batman and Robin and Aquaman and then Wonder Woman and then the Wonder Twins. I still don't understand them, but, you know, they were, they were like superheroes, I guess, right there. Today, you know, it's Iron Man, it's Hulk, it's Thor, it's Black Widow, Black Panther. But, you know, people are fascinated, and every generation of culture has had some kind of superheroes. You go back to Greek mythology and you think about the Romans and there was these superheroes that were out there. Now what does it take to be a superhero, right? You have to have some kind of superpower, but you also have to be able to be so strong to run in to danger, right? They, they're the ones who save the world. They're the ones who put it on the line. Those are the superheroes that we see and we're fascinated with. Now I believe every day we see heroes out there. Uh, I believe every day we see those, and we have many heroes in our church. We first responders. You know, I'm so thankful for our firefighter policemen who, and everybody else is running out. They're the ones running in. They're the ones who are saying, hey, we're going to save them. We're going to be there for them. I, I'm thankful for heroes who are teachers. You know, walk into that classroom every day and just make a difference and, and are raising up the next generation. I'm thankful for heroes like single moms who just make such a sacrifice and an impact and a difference. I'm thankful for heroes who are martyrs, who are given their, their lives for the Christian faith around the world. There's heroes out there today. And what it takes to be a hero is, is really this whole idea of what we're talking about with true grit, standing up for what you believe in, you know, being sold out for the glory of God, saying, hey, I'm going to stand up for something that matters to me. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be brave. This morning, we're launching into a brand new series. I'm so excited about this series. And we're going to kind of see an unlikely hero. They're back in the Old Testament. And it would be somebody you would think, there's no way that they were a hero. But yet, we see God working through them. And we see God using them to save an entire race of people. And God using them for his redemptive story in a powerful way. And we're going to see the beauty of bravery unfold this morning as we start a study on the book of Esther. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open with me to the book of Esther. It's in the Old Testament. And, and you guys, this is awesome. It kind of reads like a Hollywood script, really, when you kind of unfold here. But Esther, Old Testament. So if you go back kind of the first and second range, right? First, second Samuel, first, second Kings, first, second Chronicles, and then Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It's kind of a little book, slips right in there. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, that whole section right there. And we're going to see Esther, I pray, come to life. Now, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles in the back. Love for you to grab one. 
Put your name in it, take notes, write down, because there's some incredible truths, some life lessons for us that we're going to see today. But today we're going to set up the whole thing. This is a series that's going to go for three more weeks, and this is kind of the setup today for you guys to have that foundation as we go forward in this book study on Esther. Now, here's some important things to know kind of before we dive in here. So if you're taking notes, you want to write a few things down as we look at the book of Esther today. First of all, it's important to know the chronology and the context of the book of Esther, all right? Chronologically, Esther doesn't really fall before Psalms, okay? You know, uh, in the Old Testament, it's not chronologically laid out. I I like a chronological Bible many times. I'll read that in my personal time just because you can kind of get all the dates right, you know? And I love to, I'm kind of visual. I like to have everything in order, you know? So so I like that, you know? And then you see which prophets go with which kings and, and how that lays out. Esther actually is, was written in 460 BC. It's one of the last books of the Old Testament, okay? Date-wise, it would come in right there. You got Esther and then Nehemiah, the last one written around 400 BC. Then you have 400 years of silence and then Jesus, okay? The Messiah. So Esther is pretty important here. It's like God's going, hey, I want you guys to get this and understand this, that I am with you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to uphold you because you're not going to hear from me for a little bit while I'm getting the Messiah ready and all the things that are happening in the world because when Jesus came, it was perfect in God's sovereignty and God's grace. So Esther would fall around 460 BC when it was written. Now, context-wise, context-wise, this is important, Okay. The Jews, the southern kingdom, were conquered by the Babylonians in 605 B.C. And the Jews were carried off into exile. All right, so just real, real, real quick, real quick, real quick. Right, when, when they came out of Egypt and God took them to the promised land and they called out to God, said, God, we want a king. Everybody else has a king. We want a king. And God goes, but I'm your king. And they're like, yeah, we, we know, but we want our own king. And so God's like, okay. And so Saul becomes their king terrible king, right? But then God raises up a man named David. And and under David, the Jews, Israel goes to like, man, I mean, world power. I mean, they're winning all their battles. I mean, they're just expanding. And then under him, Solomon, his son, comes to power. And and, I mean, the Jews, Israel is like prominent. I mean, Solomon was the wealthiest man that ever lived. You know, I mean, he was the wisest man that ever lived. Things are great. But under Solomon, Solomon's heart starts moving away from God. And instead of focusing on God, he begins to focus on women and all the things of the world. And so the kingdom after him is divided. And you've got 10 tribes in the north. That's called the kingdom of Israel. And then you have these two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Now the 10 tribes in the north get conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And they're carried off and they're called the lost tribes. They're gone. Okay. So now you're down to Judah And Benjamin, that's where Jerusalem is and the temple. And they're down here and they're holding on to God. And they have some good kings and some bad kings. And the prophets come along and say, guys, hold on to God. Hold on to God. And Jeremiah says, if we don't hold on to God, we're going to get conquered. And we're going to be gone for 70 years. But God will bring us back. Now, nobody ever got brought back. Okay, let me just say, once a nation conquered you, you were taken off. You were done for. But the Jews, they were conquered by the Babylonians and they went off into exile. But here's the incredible thing. The Persians conquered the Babylonians and Cyrus, the king of Persia, decreed that the Jews could return to their homeland in 539 BC. Which is stunning, amazing, unbelievable. They go back, they rebuild the temple in 516 BC. The temple was destroyed in 586, rebuilt in 516, which is 
70 years, right? Just as Jeremiah told him long before, God's going to bring us back. And Cyrus issues this decree, but not all of the Jews returned. Many stayed, okay? So that's what we're going to see. Esther takes place in Susa, and that's the complex of the Persian kings, the palace complex there. So Esther stayed. Esther was there. She was a Jew living there in Persia in the capital that was the big empire, the big guy on the block back in those days, all right? Now here's the thing. The main purpose of the book, the main purpose of the book of Esther, twofold. One, to show how God protects his people, okay? God's going to use this girl, <laughs> Esther, in an incredible way to protect his people. But, but really God's saying, hey, I'm going to protect you. God made a promise to you. In fact, when you gave your life to Christ, God made this promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's awesome. And you see that all the way back in the Old Testament. God taking care of his people and God will take care of you. That is an incredible truth. Here's the other thing. This book also shows the origination of the Jewish festival of Purim. And we're going to see this more later on. But, but they still celebrate this today. So this is something that we're seeing that's happening even today that comes out of this. All right. This book is unique for two reasons. All right, this first one is, is going to blow you away, all right? Here we go. There is no mention of God. I mean, how crazy is that? In the book in the Bible, there is no mention of God in the entire book. But it is assumed that God's in complete control, okay? I mean, it's just a total assumption. Hey, God's in control, but God's name's never mentioned in the entire book. We'll come back to that later. It is also named after a woman. That's a big deal, all right? In the Bible, the canon, right? You have two books of the Bible named after women, Ruth and Esther. And there's no other major world religion. The holy book would have a woman as the title of a book, okay? I mean, that is a big, and that's just God saying, hey, all people matter to me. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. All right, in the book, there's really one hero and two main characters. All right, one hero, two main characters. God is the hero, God's always a hero. This is God's story. We're living in God's story. So, you know, we can kind of think it's all about us. It's not. Okay, it's all about him. So we can kind of dial into that. But the sovereignty of God that he is always in control. And we're going to see that unfold here today. God's always in control. Esther is the main character. She becomes the queen. A little spoiler alert, but I'll, you're going to get to that today. She becomes the queen. And we're going to see the beauty of bravery. There's another main character, Mordecai. And Mordecai is Esther's relative who raises her and the possible author, okay? It's around 460 BC, Mordecai writes this, and we're going to see this today. Now, if you have a Bible, let's jump into the text, and I want you to see what happens here in the book of Esther. It says in verse 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. All right, this, this is the guy, man, he's over like a huge part of the world. I mean, this emperor, Xerxes I, 127 provinces over the entire Fertile Crescent. And at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and nobles of the provinces were present. Now, notice this. The military leaders were there. All right, King Xerxes, we know from history. I love history, but we know from history, he's getting ready for a big war against Greece. 
And so he wants to bring everybody together. He wants to show all the people from all of his provinces that he's got the money, that they're going to be successful, that, you know, he is wealthy. He could pay for this whole war. So verse 4, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. All right, this isn't just some little, hey, come over for a party. This is six months, okay? 180 days, he's got people from all of his kingdom coming over. People even speak in different languages. Everybody's there. And he has this party for 180 days. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. So he had an after party, right? You know, he's like, okay, you didn't get enough. You VIPs, you stick around. We're going to have a seven-day party after this in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement and marble and mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. Notice that. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. So everybody had their own goblet of gold. I mean, you talk about wealthy. This guy's spending millions on this party, right? Everybody's got their own wine goblet that was different. It was a goblet of gold. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. And by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So you're talking open bar, no limit, drink as much as you want. Everybody's walking around. I want that wine, that wine, that wine. So you can kind of imagine where this thing's going, right? After seven days of that. Well, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits, so this guy's drunk, right? I mean, he is completely drunk. The last day, he's a drunk from wine. He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him. Now the king would have eunuchs, right? Who were over kind of his harem and all the women in his, you know, court. And, and they were made eunuchs so that there wouldn't be any messing around that would happen. So these guys are eunuchs and they're serving him. And he commanded these guys, go bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles for she was lovely to look at. So the king's drunk and he's like, go get the queen, bring her in here, put her crown on. I want people to see her. I'm showing off right now. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Queen Vashti's like, no way, uh-uh. I, I mean, that's a drunken party. I'm not going in there. No way. You know, you're not doing that to me. Well, then the king became furious and burned with anger. And since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. So he goes to his court, right? He goes to kind of his, his cabinet and he says, guys, 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 come here. What should we do? What should we do? Look at verse 15. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mimucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong. 
not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. So this guy, Mimucan, you know, he's like a tough guy. Like he kind of pushed his chest out like, you know, hey, here's what we're going to do. You know, here's what we're going to do. And he just kind of goes on. You can read all this later. But he says, we're going to make an edict that all women should obey their husbands. That's what we're going to do. That's what the edict was. And Queen Vashti is no longer going to be queen. Let's do this. And so if you skip down to verse 21, the king and all of his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mimikin proposed. Verse 22, he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language, proclaiming to each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. All right, you know, Mimikin, he's a tough guy with all the other guys there. His wife wasn't there, but he's like, yeah, like, I'm going to say this right now. You know, I'm so tough, right? Okay, well, chapter two, it says later. Now, a lot happens between chapter one and chapter two. Historically, you could go back and look, and in 480 BC, the Persians come in to invade Greece. Now, you can look at different historians because this is a huge battle. You know, Thermopylae, you may have read about it or heard about it, but the Persians like way outnumbered the Greeks. And the Persians come in, some historians say a million fighters, probably more realistically, 100,000 to 300,000 warriors that are going down to fight the Greeks. But the Greeks, they trained, they worked out, okay? This is where the movie 300 comes from. Anybody seen 300? The Spartans? Some of you guys out there look like you're in that movie, okay? I mean, you've been working out, man, you're ripped. And so all the Persians come down and they're going against the Greeks and they're coming up to take them and they get whooped. I mean, they just get beaten and sent back, right? And the Greeks were way outnumbered, but they all looked like they were in 300. And the Spartans run them out, push them back to Persia. And you really see in history, kind of this is the shift. Persia to Greece, right? Right here, this happens. Well, chapter two, it says later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, <laughs> right? He gets, you know, handed to him and he's back there and he's moping and he can't believe he got beat because he outnumbered them. He just didn't train his guys because he got them all drunk and then he sends them down there. But anyway, he comes back here. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So now he comes back. There's nobody console him and say, it's okay, honey, you know, but we'll get him next time. Nobody there for him. And he comes back and he's lonely. And then the king's personal attendants proposed, let's make a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Let Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed him. Okay, so for all the people out there who go, well, the Bible's not culturally relevant, you know, the Bible doesn't fit with the times. Guys, this is The Bachelor. I mean, right? I mean, I mean, that's exactly what's happening. All right, they're like, hey, bring all these women here and the king, you know, and boy, it really works out in The Bachelor, doesn't it? Woo, right? I mean, that's terrible. I hate that show. I hate The Bachelor. I, all that because it's just so stupid. It's ridiculous. But that's exactly what they were doing right here. So The Bachelor gets this idea 2,400 years ago. Hey, they did this. Maybe we ought to try it. You know, it really worked. But here we are. So they do this whole thing. They bring people in. And now we meet the main characters. Verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. 
son of Jer, the son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehokakin, king of Judah. All right, so if they call on you to read this week at community group, there's a lot of hard names there just to give you a heads up. But here's the thing. Mordecai came out of captivity. He's a Jew. And he's there in Susa. And instead of returning back, he stayed. And he probably stayed because he had risen up in power. Now, maybe you remember back when the Jews were taken off, they were conquered by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar took off people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Daniel rises up in power and leadership there in Babylon. Mordecai is like one of those guys. He's in leadership here in Susa. So he doesn't go back to Jerusalem. He stays there. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here we see Esther, Hadassah. She's, she's a Hebrew. Her mom and dad die. Mordecai says, I'm going to raise you. He steps in to take care of her. Her name literally means star. Well, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. Now, we don't know if Mordecai was like buddies with this guy, Hegai, and said, hey, watch out for her. You know, she's my daughter. I'm raising her. Or we don't know if she's just smart, which she probably was. She was very intelligent, but she's like, hey, I'm going to get in good with this guy. And immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best palace in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. So don't tell anybody you're a Jew, okay? We were brought over here, we were captive, we were defeated, we were brought here. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So you can just picture him pacing outside going, oh, God be with her, be with her, take care of her. Well, before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Okay, so this isn't just gonna run down to the wood house for, you know, like a little massage or a pedicure or manicure. This is 12 months. 12, this is the ultimate spa package for 12 months, okay? I mean, beauty treatments for 12 months, getting ready for this one time, all right? And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shesagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless she was ple- he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Well, when the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of, the uncle, of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what he guy, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. So he guy is right there, and Esther goes, hey, he guy, what do you suggest? You know, she's kind of smart. She's like, hey, tell me, I've, you've been watching this whole thing, you've been scouting it out. And then she goes in, and after Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. And she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, in the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. 
and she won the favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So the, she, this person who had no chance, right, comes in and becomes the queen over this entire empire. He puts the crown on her and says, you are the queen. You are the queen, Esther. Well, we're going to finish this chapter right here. Look at this, verse 19. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now the king's gate you had to be like really high up to be at the king's gate. You were like judging. That's where like there was their, their courts, everything happened there. So probably Esther goes to king and says, hey, you know, my dad, he's awesome. And he goes, okay, I'll promote him. And so Mordecai's there at the gate and Mordecai was sitting there, but Esther had kept, had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. So she's still listening to Mordecai. Parents, you still have impact over your kids. You may think, well, they're teenagers, they don't listen to me anymore. No, 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 they do. You know, or even a young adult, they still listen. And she was listening to Mordecai. Well, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Berganthia and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And we don't know if they're like, well, the king's not doing a good job. We, we just lost this war. But they were going to go in to assassinate the king. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on the gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the annuals in the presence of the king. Now in a couple of weeks, this is going to be a really big deal. And we're going to come back to this later on. But I want you to see, here's this girl, right? She's a Jew, she's in this land, and God is with her, and she becomes the queen overall. Now, there's some life lessons for us from chapters one and two. Life lessons, if you're taking notes, I want you to write some things down. First of all, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. What that means is this, God's in control, all right? We may look at our lives and we may look at the world and we may think, God, where are you? What is happening? What is going on? But what we're going to see throughout this whole study, what you see throughout the entire Old Testament is God's got this. God is in control. God's providence is always at work, even when we don't see him or understand. God was there with Esther. God was there with Mordecai. God was there with his people even when they didn't understand this. Why are we here? Why am I in this beauty pattern? Why this? Why what's going on? I don't understand. But guys, God's with you. God's with you and God's with me. If you're in Christ, here's the amazing part, right? Nothing happens by chance or accident. If you are in the Lord, nothing happens by chance or accident. Now, all of us, we can look back on our life and we can see how God brings goodness out of some really dark times, right? And out of some of our broken times, we look back and we go, oh, I remember going through that. I remember being so stressed out and I remember praying about this and, and it didn't work out like I thought. But now looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, God, that's what you were doing. We didn't want to move, but we moved and here we are and this happened. I didn't know what was going to get and I didn't get that job. And, and then, but God, like, look what you did. Romans 8.28 says this, 
And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. Now, I want you to see this verse for a second because it doesn't say all things are good. We live in a broken world. We do. We live in a world where there's sin. We live in a world where hurt people hurt people. There are some things that are not good that happen in this world. But it says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good. God can take the broken pieces and he can bring good out of those. And in your life and my life, man, we just look back and we can see that. And what that should do is give us confidence. Man, what if we could live this way going forward? Instead of living our lives looking back, what if we could just live going forward going, okay, God, I don't understand why this just happened, but God, I'm going to trust you. And God, I'm going to hold on to you. And God, I'm going to be faithful to you. Even when I don't understand it, God, you've got this. You think that would give you more confidence? When things happen in your life, you think you would just go, okay, okay. God is with me. God is for me. I don't understand this. But God, I'm going to trust you. God, I'm going to hold on to you. Here's the second thing I want you to get. You're going to see this over the coming weeks. But God uses men and women for his glory. God uses men and women for his glory. You see, God's sovereign, right? God is the hero. God's always the hero, right? God is sovereign. God doesn't need us. I mean, God created the entire world. God keeps it spinning, puts it in motion, right? God doesn't need us. But for whatever reason, God uses men and women to accomplish his will. In the sovereignty of God, God's inviting you and I to be a part of his story. And God is saying, I'm going to work through you, if you will allow me. And so often we're like, oh, no, no, that's okay. I'm going to sit on the sidelines. And God, no, 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 no. God wants to work through us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, right? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. God uses all people who are willing for his name and for his glory. Guys, this is important. Guys, this is important. And, and back in this day, right, you got these macho men who are bowing up and saying, yeah, I'm going to make a law and all women have to obey their husbands. Da, da. And, and some people will come along and they'll say, well, doesn't the Bible say wives submit to your husbands? And it does. Ephesians chapter 5. Wives submit to your husbands. And you know what it also says? Wives submit to your husbands as the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In fact, what the Bible does, it puts the onus on the men. Husbands, you love your wife. You love your wife in such a way that she's going to go, yeah, I trust you. Yeah, you have my best interests in mind. Yeah, you care about me. Husbands, man, that's our call to step up and be the men that God's called us to be, to be the spiritual leaders in the home. It's not just bowing up like this. No, it's saying, hey, hey, I want to love you. I want to love you. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? We need to be champions for one another. You know, I, I think we grow up in our society. I love sports. I played a lot of sports. It, it, but, but we get this competitiveness. And, and we're like always wanting to win. But, but what if we were champions for it? Mordecai becomes a champion for us. Or I'm going to raise you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to pour into you. What if we became champions for one another? One of the best for each other. What if we did that for men? Doing that for women? I mean, you know what? Women's rights, we've come a long way. But we still have further to go. It's, it's, it's been less than 100 years that women could vote in the United States. 1920, right? 19th Amendment. And I'm thankful for some men, right? If women couldn't vote, that means that some men stepped up and said, okay, I'm going to vote for the right for women to vote. 
And I'm thankful for whoever those men were, but then at some point you're saying, I, I want to do that. It's being a man or being a woman is stepping up and saying, God cares about all people. And God wants all people to win. And we still have father to go, don't we? We need to have equal pay for equal jobs. We need to be men and women who are champions to say, hey, I want the best. And it's not just gender, it's race. It's for all of us to be champions to say, how can we meet needs? How can the spirit of God flow through us? And it's not about me. It's about me making a difference in the lives of others. And Mordecai pours into Esther, knowing that God's gonna use her. Are we pouring into others? Okay, here's the, here's the next one. Always be ready. Guys, always be ready. Life can change on a dime. In good ways and in struggles too, right? I mean, here's Esther. I mean, she's kind of like, a, nobody knows who she is. She would have died. Nobody ever heard of her. But all of a sudden now, she's the queen. And you're going to see in a couple of weeks, man, she's going to have this opportunity to step up and be brave. And is she going to be ready for that? Is she going to step into that or is she going to back away from that? And Mordecai, he, he could have stepped away from that and go, oh, I hear that. I'm not going to get involved here. Always be ready. Life can change like that. It, it can. So that's why develop your character and integrity now. Develop your character and integrity now. It's important for you and for me to spend time in God's word, to get up in the morning and to say, hey, I'm going to start my day with the Lord. I'm going to start my day in prayer because you don't know what that day holds. You don't know what's going to happen that day. You don't know the challenges that are going to come or you don't know the opportunities that are going to come. There might be a promotion and you're like, whoa, I don't know if I'm ready for this. But you know what? I, I, I got to be. I got to be ready for everything because I'm grounded in the Lord. The Lord knows. So if I'm going to invest in something, I'm going to invest in him because he's already there. And so for me to develop the man or for the woman that you are going to be, whatever the circumstances are, Develop your character and your integrity. See, God's more interested in your character than your comfort. God's more interested in your character than your comfort. And sometimes when we go through challenges, and maybe you're here today, you're going through a challenge. Listen, God hasn't left you. God hasn't abandoned you. God is with you. God is for you. A lot of times when we're in those challenges, we just want to fast forward, don't we? Like, I just want to move through this. Get me on to the good times. But what if we started to pray, God, you're teaching me something right now. God, you're developing me for something right now. God, you're working in me right now. And maybe it's something that's gonna happen tomorrow, the next day or next month or next year. But God, I wanna learn everything I can right now. I wanna be the man or woman you call me to be right now because I don't know what is to come. And I'm gonna say this too, I'm gonna say this too. To, to all the parents, Mordecai poured into Esther and he brought her up in a way that when she got this position, she still listened to him, Right? And later on, she's going to know who she is in the Lord, that she's one of God's chosen people. And parents here, our call is to raise up the next generation. And like I mentioned earlier, I love sports. I, I do. It's fun. I grew up playing sports all the time and everything else. But, but if your child, when they graduate from high school, they know more about soccer than they knew about Jesus, you missed it. Okay? I mean, there's very few people who get scholarships. And it's great if you do, that's wonderful. But, but even soccer's only going to last several years. Or if they know more about volleyball or basketball. or This, when you pour into them a character and integrity and giving them a spiritual foundation, that lasts for eternity. That impacts everything in their life. 
And so I just challenge us and encourage us. I'm so thankful for family ministry here at church as we partner together with parents. And I've got kids that are involved there. If you're a parent and you have a preschool or a child or middle school student, a high school student, make sure they go to summer camp. I'm telling you, that week will make a huge impact in their lives. I'm gonna make sure they're at vacation Bible school. We're gonna do something called Windshape Camp. It's in July. We kind of helped start this thing and now it's nationwide, but we're gonna do it here. It's a day camp and it'll be on our, our field next door and it's gonna be awesome. Sign your kids up. They're gonna hear about Jesus. They're gonna learn. They're gonna get in God's word. They're gonna learn about leadership. But are we pouring in? Are we raising the future leaders? Are we raising spiritual leaders? Because they're gonna face issues that we won't ever face. Are they gonna be ready to lead the world? Are they gonna be ready? Because we're pouring into them and we're teaching them and giving that foundation like Mordecai did for Esther. Here's the fourth one. Use your platform to further God's kingdom. Use your platform to further God's kingdom. Esther's gonna do that. Mordecai does that. Are we doing that? You know what? Whatever your platform is, whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's Nissan, whether it's HCA, whether it's social media, whatever your platform is. This past Thursday, we had Brett Kern at our Men's Leadership Network here. And, and Brett Kern is the punter for the Tennessee Titans. And so many kids look up to the Titans, you know, or the Predators and look at them as heroes. And, and Brett Kern, you know, here's this guy. He's been in the league 10 years. Titans start training camp tomorrow. And Brett Kern sat right here on the stage and he said, you know what? Jesus Christ is the most important part of my life. It's all about Jesus. And he starts talking about being in the locker room. And he goes, you know, God's given me this platform in the locker room to, to tell guys about Jesus. And he talks about leading one of the other players to Christ. And he starts tearing up as he talked about baptizing one of his teammates last year in a lake for Christ. And he goes, I'll sit there and I'll open my Bible, you know. And guys are like, hey, dude, what are you doing? He's like, I'm reading the Bible. They're like, what? You know, he goes, I got more spiritual conversation. He goes, I don't know how long I'm going to have this platform, but I'm going to use it for however long I do for the glory of God. I just thought, wow, I love that. You know, for all of us, for all of us, guys, you're a hero. And you got the Holy Spirit in you. You be that hero at home, but you be that hero in your neighborhood. You be that hero in that community. You be the hero in your workplace for the glory of God. You know what? Esther's gonna come back and it's gonna be for such a time as this. This is our time. This is our time. She had her day. We've got our day. How are we gonna live it for the glory of God? What are we gonna do with what we've been given? Because there's still breath in our lungs for a reason. And God's not finished with any of us yet. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. Just for a moment. Today, right where you are, would you just affirm, God, you're sovereign. You're in control. I may not understand everything that's going on around me, but, but God, I'm yours. And I'm going to hold on to you. Maybe right where you sit, you just say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to live my life for you. Or maybe you just say, you know what? I, I want to have a godly marriage. I want to raise up spiritual leaders. I want to raise up godly kids or grandkids. I want to pour into them. I don't know what leadership roles they're going to have in the future, but I want them to be grounded now. Maybe God's speaking to you just about using your platform. 
Not simply to build your own kingdom, but to further his. So, Father God, here we are, your disciples today. And Father, I thank you for this book 2,400 years ago, and yet it's so relevant in this call to be brave, this call to step up. And so I pray, Father, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that did miracles. This is the same Spirit alive in us. And give us, God, a heartbeat for you, not to get distracted in a pagan culture, not to get consumed with the things around us, to be in the world but not of the world, God. And God, I pray that you would use us for your glory. And God, we need you. Every day we need you. And we thank you today that you're in control, that you are sovereign. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.